You have to be cured. It was horrible. Of course it was horrible. Violence is a very horrible thing. That's what you're learning now. Your body's learning it. I just don't understand about feeling sick the way I did. I never used to feel sick before. I used to feel like the very opposite. I mean, doing it or watching it, I used to feel real on a show. That was Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell, going for experimental therapy so that he can be cured of his violent impulses in 1972's A Clockwork Orange. The film caused a moral panic in its day due to accusations of copycat crimes inspired by some of its scenes. This week, we watched Censor, a twisted horror film set in the video Nazi era where there was many a moral panic about ultraviolence on screen. Also, the original moral panic of mods versus rockers scrapping on the beaches of Brighton featuring my review for road movie, The Pebble and the Boy. We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films. And films are better than people. I'm Sam. And I'm Lawrence. You needn't take it any further, son. You've proved to me that all this ultraviolence and killing is wrong. Wrong and terribly wrong. I've learned my lesson, son. I see now what I've never seen before. I'm cured. Praise God. You're not cured yet, boy. So, we're doing something slightly new. We've actually also got quite a quick review as a bit of an add-on to our uh, to our main feature. A little Easter egg. A little Easter egg. I went to see a film called The Pebble and the Boy, which is a British comedy about a 19-year-old boy called John, whose dad dies in a car accident. Uh, John is from Manchester. And his dad used to be a mod in the 80s. Mod culture, like, you know, The Who and Paul Weller, The Jam, uh, all that jazz. And I think that name mod actually might have come from, like, a jazz lingo. I'm not sure. It's not really my world. But anyway, he uh, meets up with a friend of his dad's daughter's uh, called Nikki. And then together they go on a road trip to sprinkle his dad's ashes in Brighton. A bit of a mod mecca. Mod mecca. I like that. Mod mecca, yeah. And uh, it's also uh, where Paul Weller is playing a gig. So they're going to do that. So they set off on their little mod scooters. Going to see Paul Weller in the mod mecca. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Very catchy. Um, Or, as a haiku, dead dad, mod road trip. A Lambretta Odyssey? Won't get fooled again. Nice. Are they going to a town called Malice? No, they're going to a town called Brighton. Why? Why would it be called Malice? I don't understand the reference that you're making there. Okay. I do. I do. I do get that reference. Well, here's a clip. Mom again. Probably worried you'll get me pregnant. This is the best road trip ever. We are the mud. We are. We are. We are the mud. I'm turning back. I bet your dad never turned back. In the haiku was a little bit of my review, I suppose. Because, I mean, it looks like... I mean, if you watch the trailer, go and watch the trailer. I mean, it looks like the kind of dull Sunday afternoon, lazy BBC movie of the week fair. And uh, it certainly is that. It's really fucking terrible. And almost feel a bit of guilt that someone makes a small British film that is maybe to a bit of a niche audience or niche musical market. I'd love to say that it was more than it was, but it wasn't. It's just a it's just a horrible rubbish coming of age film. It's not the worst idea in the world. You know, people like mods. 
Uh, you could find a story to build out of that. I think that'll be really interesting. It's not my music. I think you know it. The mod music a little bit better than I do, maybe? Yes, yeah, some. Yeah, not not especially. I know the, the movements become more famous than the music, I'd say. Yeah. I just don't know why they then decided to take like a beige, rushed, unconvincing road trip like romantic teen movie and stretch it around that it revolves around basically this love story between these two teens as much as 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 much as it revolves around anything and i just hated it i hated the love story so much because nikki's like a she's like a manic pixie dream mod she's this free spirit uh music lover and a bit of a troublemaker but she only exists for the main male character uh, to basically unlock his modness for John to become the mod that he's always supposed to be. He's at first awkward and unsure of himself, but somehow John just manages to become supremely irritating and just awful throughout. Uh, He comes up with the plan and then just keeps giving up on the plan, and then he spends most of the movie, like, flip-flopping between the two. The plan's on, and the plan's off, and the plan's on, and then the plan's off. And it just happens when he sort of meets someone he doesn't like, or he, he gets too drunk, or he just gets in a mood, and he's just a bit pissed off. And, and throughout the whole thing, like, no one gets annoyed at him. And I'm like, how? How is no one, like, a- annoyed at this supremely irritating narcissistic mopey teen but Nikki just remains impossibly loyal to him and and starry-eyed and just falling in love with him the whole way and it's just like why um everyone is like terrible in it apart from Ricky Harnett who's in it who I love to see in anything he's in in a lot of like gangster films he was in 28 days later but I just kind of love seeing him sort of in a kind of Jason Statham Nicolas Cage way like he, you're, you're never really sure if he's playing it completely serious or he knows he's like being, he's playing to type or being like a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek character. You're never sure. But anyway, Ricky Harnett is great. The the plot's just hackneyed too. There's just a, a sort of a mystery to uncover that's just a bit too shiny and neat. But then that's the whole rest of the film too. Uh, it looks too shiny and digital. There's no texture or interesting stuff to look at. It just sort of looks like a, a clothing shoot. I mean, I would say like a perfume shoot, but it doesn't look good enough to be a perfume shoot. It's, it does kind of make sense because in the final credits, it says it's in association with two mod brands. So maybe the whole thing was just an elongated like advert for mod clothing. I'm not really <laughs> sure. Um, it's, it's honestly not that I hate the music. Some of it I like. Uh, most of it I don't know, and I kind of like mod mod fashion and the cool scooters. It's just bargain basement British movie tosh. It, it's like a weak tea version of On the Road. It's it's rubbish, and no one should see it. I have a question about it. Please do go. And you know his dad dies. Yes. In the film and in the trailer, you, you don't see who his dad is, and I was just wondering: Is his dad Phil Daniels? Does it turn out to be Phil Daniels? I can't remember. So Phil Daniels stars in Quadrophenia, which is obviously the most famous mod film ever made. And I'm sure there's lots of references throughout to Quadrophenia in this film, which you... I don't know if you've seen Quadrophenia, but... I I actually haven't seen Quadrophenia. It feels like it should be, you know, required watching to actually get the most out of this film. What little there is to get out of this film. Yeah, I mean, Quadrophenia is also set in Brighton. So I just wondered if there was going to be a joke at the end that his dad turned out to be, you know, the guy who was in the most famous mod film of all time. But I think they would make it more obvious. And I think you would have noticed it. When looking at the cast list, I didn't see Phil Daniels on there. That would have been a great idea. Maybe you should have directed the film. Yeah, I I thought that's where they were going with it. Uh, Because Phil Daniels has been known to pop up in quite low-budget British 
fair from time to time. So oh. I thought that's uh, that was going to happen. Well, this and, would be perfect for it. Well, yeah. I mean, if I was ever going to watch this film, that would be the only reason for it. And um, now you've taken that away from me. So. Oh, well, <laughs> there you go. Congrats. Well, then you should. I'm doing you a favour because you shouldn't watch this film. It's rubbish. You are a mod. You are a mod. You are, you are, you are a mod. Um, I have also got a quick, uh, if you like this, uh, if you like this... Sounds like you're going to make it very quick. Oh, I am. <laughs> it's a new format. We're shrinking the, the reviews down. It's going to be quick. Um, right, no, so, I'm just thinking you because you hate it so much. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's uh, that's true. Uh, that too. If you like this, I think you should watch Blinded by the Light, which is the story of uh, a boy growing up in Luton. He's, uh, he's an Asian boy who becomes obsessed with Bruce Springsteen uh, in the 1980s. I listen to everything. I can feel it all right here. It's like Bruce knows everything I've ever felt. Everything I've ever wanted. My poems, they're not brilliant, but they're mine. You think that this man sings for people like us? But he talks to me. Uh, It has the same feel. It's warm, it's safe, it's... British, but kind of glossy British. Midsummer Murders sort of British. Like, it's murder, but it's murder by the National Trust. But in this, it's the National Front done by the National Trust. I mean, if you enjoy the idea of going to see a British film about loving music in a very British way, and with a connection to a father as well, those two have those links. Blinded by the Light is quite saccharine, in the same way that that's that's basically what all of the, the horribleness of The Pebble and the Boy is. It's just horribly saccharine. Uh, but I think in Blinded by the Light they get away with it because it communicates being a fan and how much being a fan can be important to you and how loving something and making a connection with something can be so important to you. And I kind of love this film. I love Blinded by the Light because that's kind of how I feel about films as well as the way he feels about Springsteen. Kind of why I make this podcast. So, you know, The the Pebble and the Boy is, is more about mods, how mods are kind of like a second family. In Blinded by the Light, it's actually more about how music can make you feel heard when no one else hears you and i think that's really really important and it also got me into springsteen a bit so that's that's always kind of good oh it got me into springsteen as well it did there you go if you didn't like it then i'd suggest going to watch brigsby bear from 2017 which is about a guy called james who grows up uh being raised by he who he thinks is his mother and father in this kind of survivalist dome quite advanced and, and and pleasant but still a kind of survivalist dome after what he thinks has been a great war that means that out they can't go outside anymore and it's just the three of them still alive in the world and then he discovers that actually he was kidnapped as a boy and actually those two those two people he thought were his parents actually kidnapped him and then he has to meet his real family but the thing is, is that while he was in the dome with his fake family there, as part of the entertainment, they always used to show him this show called Brigsby Bear, and he was all and he thought that someone else made Brigsby Bear, but it was just his fake dad that that made it. But he's obsessed with Brigsby Bear; that's his favourite thing. So when he discovers there's no more episodes, he kind of goes on a quest to make his own episodes of that with some new friends in the you know quote unquote real world. The reason you're here, the reason I'm here, is all just to help you. Everyone says they're trying to help me, but nobody can find me in the new episode of Brigsby. There wasn't a new episode this week. This is about moving on with the rest of your life. Try to imagine a hero. She's not on the bad side. 
He's on the good side. Yes! We're, we're kind of going across the pond because this is like an American film. So a different feel altogether. Uh, that This might seem like a bit of a strange choice, but I mean, the film starts out and you think, is it going to be a kind of a slightly more surreal fish-out-of-water comedy? Uh, but then it isn't it at all. It's actually all about being a fan and about loving stuff and why it's important to you and how that love for something can spread to other people and make them love uh, something, not necessarily the thing, but also but being con- contributing and being part of it. They love it as well. It's not about making you odd. It's about making you kind of connect with the world at the same time. Perhaps it's also kind of about letting go of some of those things and like reaching a kind of equilibrium with them. Or maybe it's about actually contributing to, to the thing and becoming, you know, being inspired by it and becoming, if you, you know, if you love a, a film or a TV series or a book or something, it's inspiring you to become a creator as well. Not, It's not a very well-known film, but it's something I really want to champion because it really surprised me. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite like, it's quite quirky and offbeat. But I think it's a good companion piece to the pebble and the boy. It is. They are, in some ways, they are like almost too different for this comparison. But I think that um, Brigsby Bear is like actually has its own unique sense of humour and its own um, unique way of presenting this viewpoint on the world. And that's something that the pebble and the boy just couldn't achieve at all because it's like a pasty, sugary sweet like imitation of other stuff that's done what it's done a lot better even with its connection to mod music which might make it fun for like mods to to watch but i think brigsby bear could be watched by anyone and then everyone can have their own connection to it everyone's got their own brigsby bear in their life it's a really really worthwhile comedy and it's a little bit different and i think is is really worth a look Gee, so it starts out with someone discovering that they were actually kidnapped as a child. Yeah, but it's funny. It's done in a funny way. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a right hoot. <laughs> you know, it, it's done in a way that it's, like, farcical. It's, like, done in a way that the world he exists in is, is is kind of sweet, but also kind of silly. Wow, so I think you've actually managed to make your reviews of Brigsby Bear and Blinded by the Light longer than your review of Pebble and the Boy. <laughs> Shows how much you absolutely despise that film. I really did. I really did. Uh, we'll we'll work on the format because it's supposed to be the other way around, isn't it? That the first thing's supposed to be longer than the if you like this. Hmm. Oh well, I'll try and watch something better than the Pebble and the Boy next time, so I have something that I want to talk about a bit more. I guess that won't be too difficult. No, it won't. So this week we watched Censor, and Sam's going to tell you the plot. Set in the nineteen eighties. Enid works for the BBFC, the board that regulates films to the UK public. When she was younger, Enid's sister Nina went missing and her body was never found. While watching a particularly violent horror film for her job, Enid thinks she sees an actress that resembles how Nina would look if she were alive. She becomes obsessed with finding out the whereabouts of that actress in the hope that it really is her long-lost sister. Or, as a haiku, chopping the nasties. Old wounds rewound and rewatched. The nasty chops you. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah. It's because it's about a video nasty. Yeah, it is a little bit. Yeah, chops edits. That's that's chop is a word for edit for any of you non-movie people out there. You know, listening to your gods for you know what 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 films are about. That's what chop means. It means edit. If Films are better than people. Was a video nasty? What would it be called? 
Well, first of all, do you think we'd be the killers in the video nasty, or would we be the victims? Both. Both. Okay. Well, maybe it would be called like it would. It would be some pun on twins, since we are yeah. twins. Brothers so, rampage. Brothers rampage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really. St- I guess that could be us. Depends what we're rampaging towards. If it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet, or uh, you know, something like that. I've seen you in one of those, and it can get pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it can. So here's a clip. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, Enid. I'm cutting it. Butchery, sadism, murder. A wave of depraved and corrupt horror video. Confusing fiction with reality. Doug Smart, producer, high dent investment films. Maybe Enid could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on this film. There's this actress. I've got this feeling that's Nina. My sister. I was really looking forward to this, and uh, it looked right on my street, and it didn't disappoint. I mean, I think this is going to be one of my favourite things I see all year. It's really brilliant horror with lots of different elements to it that are interesting. Uh, It's really visceral on a kind of gut level. Uh, it's so well put together, like edited. There's so much like interesting ideas with the way that it looks, and it probably gives you the chills as well, which is great. I mean, I I just think this was a phenomenal piece of work. Yeah, I agree. That's it. That's the review. <laughs> we, can, we can move on now. Uh, now, Bit strong. Bit yeah. strong. I think before we get into actually talking about the film, we should talk about video nasties. Because there'll be a lot of people who don't know what video nasties are. I mean, kind of horror connoisseurs know them very, very well. But um, basically, sure. <clears throat> so video nasties were a name given to a whole raft of gory and violent horror films that were released in the 1980s. Some a little bit before, some a little bit after, but it was around the 1980s. Sure. They were subject to intense criticism from the media, politicians and individuals claiming to be concerned with family values. Um, After the Video Recordings Act of 1984, certain films were cut or heavily edited by the BBFC to remove certain scenes deemed unnecessarily violent or obscene, while some were banned outright, which of course enhanced their reputation. Examples of the video nasties were The Evil Dead, Driller Killer, and Cannibal Holocaust, amongst other sort of very colourful titles. You you know it's a video nasty because it's got some sort of insane name. Yeah. That's also part of its probably part of its appeal. I mean, those films are trying to hit you on some kind of gut level and say we're going to give you some some of the baser pleasures, most mostly extreme violence, like whatever whatever kind of twisted ideas we can put on screen. Infamously, of course, video nasties. You know, this this is this is almost part of their marketing campaign. Uh, something that I think probably quite a few film marketers and certainly media marketers have have probably used to great effect in the modern age with making something infamous as much as just famous, because it just makes people want to see them more. Uh, yeah, Video Nasties did not help to quell the, the tide of, of, of movie violence. It just seems to have inspired uh, a whole new bunch of uh, horror fans and filmmakers, such as Prano Bailey Bond, who's the director of this. Yeah, and it was deemed something of a moral panic 
I think, you know, there were sort of infamous newspaper articles saying that some of these video Nazis were linked to real murders and they were influencing criminals to go out and commit these horrific acts. Of course, that was never proved, really. Uh, but actually, I think Centre really touches upon this. I mean, yeah. what you kind of get in it is not only a horror film that's kind of really interesting and bizarre, but also a film that's quite political because it's about it's set during an era and it's set during a, a certain time in this country. Yeah, it is. One of the things I like about this film so much is that there's lots of different angles you can take it at. You can see it as just a kind of uh, chiller about this weird goings-on in the movie industry. Uh, Or you could see it as a bit of a direct comment on video nasties. You could take it kind of either way, I think. I think you could see it as a film that kind of satirising that time and saying, look, even a censor can be sent down a dark hole with these like and whether that shows that the system is corrupt or whether these video nasties really aren't that nasty it is also a little bit ambiguous i think uh with the the effect it has on on enid's world uh whether she would just have been better off never of encountering these things in the first place is is, is maybe a way you could read the film yeah i guess that's the one of the questions really like why did she become a censor in the first place really obviously we know that she's lost her sister and maybe that's kind of part of the reason that she wants to prevent these these horrible, unspeakable things getting out into the world. Because she she thinks she's had... protecting people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's made that's clear. her motivation. Yeah, that that's her motivation, and uh, it's her descent into this into her own personal trauma that kind of moves the film along and everything. I think it's important to say that probably uh, a director like Prano Bailey Bond, who's who's interested in horror films, probably isn't against. Uh, horror films or or doesn't want them censored and I think she is uh, a bit of an encyclopedia of these things uh, according to Neve Algar who was in the film but I think she still wants to kind of like push them in your face a bit and maybe like make you think about them and make you think about what were the motivations behind them and did it really make any sense? Are are these things going out into the world and and hurting people or are they themselves a product of, 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 of a cruel and and evil world or are they maybe just a bit of harmless fun <laughs> uh, i don't know yeah she prano bailey won the director she actually made a film called nasty uh, a short film called nasty i should say in 2015 and that has a lot of the same dna as censor does i think it's about someone who works for the bbfc who's oh, right. kind of going through trying to deal with traumas of their past really so it's kind of taken her six years to make a feature-length film sort of based upon that that original short film but I think just what a debut. I think it's a really incredible piece of work. It looks amazing as well. I think you really get that feel of a drabness of the 1980s that maybe you don't see the kind of the everyday commute and everything. And the, I mean, it's just such a perfectly put together like horror film. All the ways that it like kind of builds tension and the, you know, when when you're going into a, like a more surreal part of the film, like the colours start to become more vibrant and rich. And then in like, other parts it just like it, it finds ways to like sneak things up on you it, it's 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 not a spoiler to say that i think there's a certain amount of like you're not sure how much we can trust enid du- during the film and the the visuals start to influence that as well it, it starts to make you question like w- we're seeing this are we more in a kind of dreamscape or is there or is she really kind of traveling into some kind of weird places are these things really happening i think as well like some of the most impressive visual stuff was how it starts to make it look like a video nasty it's not just in the the splatter and the and the gore and stuff but it's also like 
there's a point in the film where very subtly the the screen starts to shrink and you don't really notice it and that's kind of terrifying in itself but it's kind of pulling itself down to the ratio of a vhs tape and like that's really clever um yeah it's like a video nasty about video nasties <laughs> i think it's definitely got that it's definitely got that element but i think it's also a bit of a deconstruction of video nasties era and of the era because i think you mentioned about it being in the 1980s and actually there feels like so much repression in the world at that time um which there was really and yeah that's there why was it's so drab and like especially enid's world feels like she's so constrained and again, if maybe it's this trauma from her past that's kind of keeping her repressed in a way. Uh, but yeah, she lives in this world where she seems to have sort of very little freedom and it's sort of very monotonous. But the great thing about that is kind of contrasted with video nasties, which are really colourful and really violent. And just, you know, even though they are very obscene, there is this glorious nature about them. And I think that's what draws people into them. You know, without getting off the topic of the film too much. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm quite against a lot of what the kind of the, the, the concept of what the video nasty was supposed to be about. That idea that somehow someone could make a, a horror film that could inspire someone to to do a terrible thing. I, I don't doubt that films have an effect on us. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm like so interested by them. I think they are very important. The stories that they tell and the effect that it can have on people. The idea that one person can see something really really terrible on on a screen and that makes them want to copy it reenact it for, for for real for serious you know is is just nonsense to me and it's touched upon in the film yes it is because a part like a subplot within the film is that Edith gets in trouble because her and a colleague pass a film that gets released and then what happens is that there's a real life murder and the press find out that she was one of the people that passed it at the BBFC and they harass her, and they her picture and name is in the paper, and yeah, she, I think that's actually quite similar to what happened with another video nasty. I can't remember which real life crime it was linked to, really? but I think like the names of people from the BBFC they were released to the press, and yeah, they were, again there was this kind of moral outrage about it, and you know they're almost like part of this crime because they. They they pass this film. That's, it's, it's just insane. Yeah. I mean, that's the definition of this mo- of a moral panic. It's hilarious when you think like, about it now, but yeah, because I mean, censorship doesn't even exist now. Well, I mean, it, I, I the mean, BBFC what, does. No, no, sorry, it, it does exist, but it also in, well, in my mind, it doesn't really exist at all because it's pointless because there's the internet. You know, I, I think that most people by the time they hit puberty have seen loads of really horrible and extreme things on their or on a friend's small mobile phone screen. You can't ban it you can't censor it you can't stop it because believe me the government have tried and failed several times to try and get this to happen what you can do is educate people prepare them make them understand what they're seeing and give it a context and that's what can that's what can actually help anyway that's my that that's my message for the day out of the way that's mm. my that's my end of the show 80s chat like out of the way where you all learn an, a nice moral lesson like what have we learned but yeah no i think it was part of the culture maybe it does i think yeah there's that element of censor that it's deconstructing that it's creating a kind of horror film that also asks the question about what was this weird period really about but you know, you, you, you can also just, just see it as a great psychological shocker, because it definitely is that as well. Although it's got, it's got a lot of angles in it, it could just also be about the kind of power of, 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 of guilt and loss as well. It makes you feel unnerved, it's, 
makes you kind of unsure about what you're seeing and it keeps you, its grip on you all the way through it. So it's you're just like on the edge. It doesn't it doesn't shock you all the time. It doesn't make you jump all the time. In fact, that really is very limited to maybe only like once or twice. But what it means is that it just keeps you in that unsettled space and then slowly kind of unpeels itself and reveals itself to you. And that's or does it? Because... Or does it? <laughs> I mean, you'll have to you'll have to watch to see. We're not going to spoil it here. Yeah, but what, it... what the hell is censor? But um, yeah, no, I think it's important to talk about the topic of gender as well. Yeah, because obviously video nasties were pretty sexist. I mean, most of the victims in those films were women, and they were kind of brutalized in in various ways, but. This kind of feels like at one point when Enid tries to get the bottom of whether it is her sister or not within this film, and she goes to try and find the filmmaker, she goes after the producer. feels like she's taking a bit of retribution. You know, she's <laughs> almost getting revenge. She's channeling that victim within a video nasty film, and yeah, she's taking hold of her own destiny in a way, or she's kind of fighting back against the, the evil forces that are in some of these... Uh, some of these video nasties. So that's kind of really great as well. That's an interesting idea. I think that you could also look this at this as another kind of retribution where I almost wondered whether there's a kind of catharsis for a filmmaker uh, to put a censor through these trials and tribulations, whether there was something almost like like punishing a, uh, you know, someone that would like chop up uh, someone's work, uh, whether there was a kind of, a weird kind of vengeance that... Bond was taking on uh, on the BBFC. I'd be so interested to know what happened when the BBFC actually saw this film. Yeah, that would have been one of those moments where <laughs> they, they were just sitting there being like, "Oh yeah, recognise that. I can recognise that." And, <laughs> yeah. Well, they haven't got this. They haven't got this part of the job quite right. But yeah, I think uh, Prano Bailey Bond. Uh, the I I actually went to a screening of it where she was there, and she says that's the question she gets asked the most. About whether the what what the censors actually thought of it, but I think she said that it just basically breezed through. There was there was, there was very little notes. So. so, so what did you think about this overall? Then I think censor kind of follows the fairly recent conveyor belt of independent horror films that are smart, psychological, with plenty going on under the surface. But I think what makes it so unique is this kind of metaphysical idea of a horror film set within the video nasty era. So it's kind of horror on horror in a way. Uh-huh. Uh, I kind of love the fusion of gender, history, politics, film culture and gore along with a narrative with so many areas of controversy and subjectivity. I think there is a danger that because the story goes down so many rabbit holes, it gets lost and loses focus along the way. Right. But I kind of think because it's so overwhelming and as it gets more illusory, you kind of really feel its impact long after you've left the cinema. I mean, I remember kind of walking out of it and I kind of three different ideas or theories about what the film was actually about, which is great. And I mean, we obviously we're talking about the film in this episode, but you saw it a few weeks ago. I saw it a couple of weeks ago, mm. but it's still right there um, in my in my head. I, I'm I, I'm kind of fascinated by it. Absolutely. I mean, I'm still going to be talking about it and talking about it to other people. Um, it might be that it doesn't hit everyone in the same way. But I think most people will really get something great out of this. I mean, it's just a multi-layered, like, perfectly made horror that just gets under your skin and sticks in your mind in all the best ways. Like, it really does. I think it's an absolute must-see for horror fans, I think, in particular. But it's it's just an incredible piece of work. I can't wait to see what Prana Bailey Bond does next. It's just absolutely top-class horror. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not... 
you say it could be for horror films. I think horror fans who kind of love this idea of, of horror sort of deconstructing certain ideas within the genre. Because I don't think I don't think if you were a fan of like slasher films, for example, you would really want to go and see this because actually I think if you just kind of want something that's kind of gonna scare you or you want to hide behind the sofa or those kind of classic ideas of what it's like watching a horror film, then it's not going to do that. It's gonna it's gonna make you think a lot more about the about video analysis and about gore and how or whether we should push violence to the outer limits. Really, I think you do horror fans a disservice. I think they are no, but some horror fans not. If you if you what people for... that just want a bit of splatter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't really think about that kind of person when I think about a horror fan. But but I think that's again that's the strength of censor. I think you could just see it as like a bit of a a twisted dive down a rabbit hole to use your analogy because you said rabbit holes earlier. But I think you could see it as just that, and I think you would get just as much out of it as as if you were seeing the depth of it. But I think a lot of horror fans will see the depth of it because I think a lot of horror fans are kind of interested in in this period and find it fascinating and I think this is a a film about that so I think they'll like it yeah I was massively disturbed by it as well though oh were you I think that might stop me going back from it don't get me wrong it's fascinating but incredibly unnerving I think I would have to like pluck up a bit of bravery to go watch it again. Was there anything particularly unnerving about it? You 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 could say without spoiling it. Well it starts off quite conventionally in terms of the story, but then as it goes on, it gets weirder and it goes down so many dark alleys, quite literally. You, you, by the end, you're kind of not quite sure what is real and what isn't, and those are sometimes the scariest type of horror films. That's that's true, but I love how it slowly reveals itself. I think there's a re- that I think there's some really good craft there. I think that's actually in in some ways one of its strengths. But yeah, I can see how that's pretty unnerving. Do you think that ever? You know, make a film about critics. Maybe they call it critic. What would be the horror in that? What would be the? Well, maybe like a critic is trying to pick apart a film, and then they find out that there's a film about their life. Or maybe like a team of vengeful directors whose films they've slagged off come after them, or form like a kind of allegiance to come and try and destroy them. Something like that. Yeah, I mean, I would quite like to see like a Michael Bay type director finally taking revenge on all those critics <laughs> that slagged off Transformers and, and Armageddon. Yeah, I suppose it would never happen. Filmmakers love critics. They love us. I was wondering if you had anything else on this actress. What's going to happen to her? That's top secret. People think that I create horror. Horror is already out there in all of us. So, if you like this, you should go and watch Saint Maud from 2020. If you want another slice of perfectly crafted, deeply unsettling modern British horror helmed by women in front of and behind the screen, then go watch St. Maud, released just last year. Maud is a care worker living a solitary life in a quiet British seaside town after a terrible accident lost her her last job. Deeply religious after her traumatic experience, she sees saving her newest patient, the rich, terminally ill playwright Amanda, as her new mission from God. But as her faith starts clashing with the modern world and the people in it, her messages from God start to become more intense and extreme. 
Is there a higher power at work here, or is she losing her grip on reality? You must be the loneliest girl I've ever seen. I'm ready and open. I feel fuller of your love than ever before. I have a responsibility. Oh yes, of course. This is life and death on another level. Like Censor, St. Maud is an unnerving, deeply tense experience, and both have shocks, but they're less frequent, more about building up an atmosphere of a character on a path that could be to something greater, but could also be a descent into something dark and insane. Both films use their respective subject matter to express this. In Censor, Enid starts to see the world as a film. Maud, on the other hand, sees religious imagery and God's messages slowly becoming more and more clear. Both are also the first feature-length film from a British female director starring women. The previously underused, fearless Morphid Clark is playing the leading role of Maud. And St. Maud itself is directed by Rose Glass. Some amongst you might see that observation as me being needlessly woke and lefty, but there's nothing woke about wanting high-quality film, and women have been sorely misrepresented in the horror genre for a long time. It's ironic, then, that over the past few years, a lot of the best horror I've seen has come from female filmmakers. I am by far not the first critic to notice this. St. Maud is as unsettling a censor and then some. Swap out the neon colours and uncool 80s department store vibe for sepia-stained Nowheresville, a dying town filled with the sad and the cruel. Maud seeking out religious meaning in a place so ugly is similar to Enid seeking out a meaning behind the splatter of the video nasties. But dear listener, beware. As much as St. Maud was a first-class horror experience, it almost succeeds too well. I have to admit, it left me shaken. It's a powerfully bleak and unpleasant vision. It might not get you quite as it got me, and usually if you stick a warning on something, then it softens the blow substantially, but be prepared. Films we like can sometimes be compared to a great meal or a comfy chair. St. Maud is like a brilliant roller coaster. You certainly admire whoever designed it. They must really understand roller coasters with the perfectly angled plunges, twists and spins to elicit maximum screamage. But by heck, you're only going to go on it once. It's as masterful a horror as sensor, unnerving, creepy, layered, and will stay with you long after the lesson have endeth. Oh yeah, I won't be saying that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you actually ended the sensor uh, review talking about how it unnerved you, because yeah, St. Maud, as, as I've talked about, definitely had the same effect on me. But I mean, it's, it's brilliant, but I'm just only going to watch it once. Yeah, I've avoided it, to be honest. I like to try and see the sort of the best British films of the year, but I think even St. Maud might be too intimidating for me. I've heard the ending that the last twenty minutes is is a tour de force in kind of the in like horror filmmaking really, and it just gets more and more scary and claustrophobic and yeah, by the time you kind of have left the cinema, by the time you stop watching it. You're almost like in complete silence. You are. The funny thing about Censor and St. Maud, both of them, is I'd love to talk about both of them even more in depth, but I really can't without spoiling them, and I I really don't want to do that. The last section of the film is the most intense. It's kind of about that that feeling, as I described, that that St. Maud leaves you with. That sense of emptiness and bleakness and, well, true horror, really. I might go watch a Disney film after this, actually. <laughs> you want to stick one on? A, a yeah. Lovely Lion King or something. Sounds like a good tonic. <laughs> if you didn't like Censor, watch 8mm from 1999. It stars Nicolas Cage as Tom Wells, a private detective who is summoned to the mansion of a wealthy widow 
who recently lost her husband. She found in her husband's safe an 8mm tape, which turns out to be a snuff film. A snuff film is a piece of pornography that features a real murder. The wealthy widow pays Cage a lot of money to find out if events in the snuff film are as genuine as they seem for her own peace of mind. He then goes on a deep, dark and revolting journey into Hollywood to find the tape's makers and hopefully the victim alive and well. Finding the guys who made this film is going to be very difficult. I need information I thought you might be able to help. You name the vice, I name the price. I'm gonna tell you, there's things that you're gonna see that, that you can't unsee, they get in your head and they stay there. They dance with the devil. The devil don't change. The devil changes you. 8mm is written by Andrew Kevin Walker, whose screenplay for David Fincher's Seven made him one of the most sought-after script doctors in the late 1990s. This was his next piece of work and follows down the same path as Seven with ultra-violent events and a morose narrative. Going down this rabbit hole of dingy sex clubs, perverted filmmakers and deranged fetishes is a bleak experience. But maybe this is what you might be looking for instead of Censor, which is just as bleak, but a film with a lot of subjectivity around the characters, narrative and setting. 8mm is much more straightforward. It's a genre shift to a neo-noir thriller hybrid, so you're not going to be questioning whether what happened was all in a character's head. All the scenes in 8mm, for better or for worse, are set in a grim and filthy reality. Both films are about a type of film, so they do share this aspect, but Centre feels like it's exploring the history and cult of the video nasty, while the snuff film subculture that Tom becomes engrossed in is just part of the plot. Censor is made by someone who clearly loves the tropes and tone of some Vionazis and even the art behind the gore. These ideas are intrinsic to the film. I think even the most oddball of filmmakers, looking at you Nick Reffin, would have a hard time trying to do that with snuff films. There's also the element of both protagonists searching for the truth behind a disappearance and the, obses and the obsession that comes with that. Yet for Enid, it's more personal, and for Tom, it's professional, although admittedly he does get more involved with the case when he gets to know the victim's mother. Another way these two films could be different sides of the same coin are the villains. There's a mystery revolving around director Frederick Northam Censor, and his identity isn't revealed until late on, so the enigma lasts. Peter Stormare plays Dino Velvet in 8mm, but while North might be some maverick genius, Dino is an out-and-out -out sadist. Walking out of Censor, I thought the ending was an open book, there are about three different interpretations I was mulling over, which is why it could be a frustrating 80 minutes for some. 8mm does have a conclusive finale, and actually, one that gives you more hope than fear. I know we really should be encouraging people in this segment to seek out the films we talk about, but 8mm really is a tough ask. 7 is a good asset test though, and if you can handle that, then 8mm is set in the same perverted universe, so you'll be able to take what it dishes out. <laughs> it's amazing. In this segment, we've talked about three films as we usually do, and I'm not really sure that we're necessarily recommending any of them, oh. <laughs> depending on who you listen to. It's not a good I week. Mean... It's not a good week. <laughs> or does that make it a great week? Maybe even in keeping with the feel of Censor and its uh, video nasty kind of Root. Maybe someone out there is going to watch Sensor, followed by St. Maud, followed by 8mm, and there is no way they're coming back from that dark hole. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen 8mm. I know it's got a bit of a cult following. I don't really remember liking it, but maybe it's it's gotten better with age or something. I'd certainly forgotten that Peter Stormare or James Gandolfini are in it. That really makes me want to seek it out. I love those guys. Yeah, it's I, I haven't watched it for about five years. But I remember them the second time watching it thinking, there is a lot more going on here. It's much more of a sort of classic thriller in a way, like Seven was really. I mean, I don't yeah. want to sort of 
keep repeating myself and saying, oh, it's, it's, it's like Seven. And it's not as good as Seven, but it does have the same rhythm as Seven in terms of, you know, it's it's kind of, it's murder and, and you know, people living on the edge of society, really, and, you know, the lengths that they'll go to or the weird and horrible kicks some people get out of obviously seeing other people kind of going through these these horrible incidents but yeah. uh yeah it's it's yeah it's a pretty it's really gross um gross is a real understatement but no i think getting away from all the violence it is actually quite a engrossing story really because yeah i mean the subject of this film is something that a lot of filmmakers wouldn't really want to put on camera to be honest i mean but I guess because Seven was such a huge financial success, yeah, they uh, Joel Schumacher, who's the director for this film, wanted to take on Andrew Kevin Walker's uh, script. Yeah, there is a lot of depravity in it. But as the film gets on, um, and you start to find out more and more about the world, and actually, I think Nicolas Cage is kind of really underrated in it. Yeah, I know he's kind of having this re- renaissance at the moment, but this is one of his best roles that I think oh, he it? ever did. Yeah, he. He comes across as, you know, actually someone who's kind of quite straight-laced. And he's not from this world, you know, he's a complete outsider. He, I think he lives with his family in Connecticut, possibly, or, you know, quite a sort of friendly and safe part of the States. And he ends up going to Hollywood, into this horrible underworld. And that's a really interesting kind of almost like noir idea about, yeah, that, you know, you're kind of getting lost in this criminal underworld and... And trying to solve this crime, which um, no one else can. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's really really. He gripping. can put on a good performance. Yeah, like he is. He isn't just like this kind of cult cartoon character. Yeah. like he can be really good. Sometimes that's his strength. But yeah, you know, I could see him do well in this. I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but if anyone's doing a double take, like yes, Joel Schumacher directed this, as in Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Bat Nipples super campy Joel Schumacher directed this, which makes me think it's probably not that bad when you actually watch it. Like, how ba- how like, how like gruesome a film can Joel Schumacher make? You know what? Now I just really want to watch Batman and Robin. <laughs> that's After those three films, that's, that's what we need. That's what we want. I mean, I think that sounds really interesting. You've made me want to go and watch it again. I think the gruesome and the unpleasant make great material for for making a film out of certainly like a noiry thriller that sounds really interesting to me i mean i might i'll I'll be tempted to to dig that out yeah well i won't be so (laughs) you can watch it on your own (laughs) fair enough you go watch batman and robin yes Thank you so much for listening to Films Are Better Than People. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now so you never miss an episode. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts and SoundCloud. And don't forget to come follow us on Twitter at Films Are Better and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Films Are Better. <laughs>